You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of USIP, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to everyone joining us today. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the president of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institute dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping to resolve violent conflict abroad. We're delighted to join with USAID to host today's conversation on the ruinous and potentially catastrophic food crisis the world is facing. This crisis has been growing for some time, and it has a lot of causes, including the COVID pandemic, climate change-related natural disasters, and supply chain bottlenecks. But the main exacerbating cause right now is Russia's unprovoked war of aggression in Ukraine, which has impacted Ukrainian wheat production, increased the price of fuel, driven up global inflation, and further distorted global supply chains. It is important to be crystal clear about what is at stake. This food crisis represents one of the most serious threats to global peace and security we've faced in decades. Nearly 200 million people across the world are at grave risk of hunger, disease, in some places, perhaps starvation. The crisis carries the potential for driving and deepening conflicts within states and between them, and for destabilizing parts of the world which are already struggling and already very fragile. The international community has been alerted to this crisis by countries at risk, by intellectuals, policymakers, and activists, and organizations like the World Bank and the World Food Program, with its team of economists, led by my colleague and friend, Dr. Arif Hussein. During today's discussion, we'll be looking deeper at the factors driving the crisis and the potential for conflict because of these and what we can do to stop the crisis from overwhelming the world. To help frame today's discussion, we're honored to share a message from Ambassador Isabel Coleman, who is serving with distinction as the Deputy Administrator for Policy and Programming in USAID. Ambassador Coleman guides USAID's crisis response and its efforts to counter the influence of China and Russia. As the head of program and policy oversight in USAID, Ambassador Coleman focuses on strategies for addressing the root causes of irregular migration and preventing famine in future pandemics, strengthening education, health, democracy, and economic growth, and improving responses to climate change. Prior to her current position, Ambassador Coleman served on the Biden administration's transition team. She served as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations for Management, Reform, and Special Political Affairs, and as Chief Operating Officer of Give Directly, an international nonprofit tackling poverty by providing unconditional cash transfers to the extreme poor. We're very pleased to share with you a message from Deputy Administrator Coleman. We encourage everyone to join today's conversation using the hashtag at Hunger and Conflict. Good morning. First, my sincere thanks to USIP for holding this important and timely discussion. As everyone here well understands, 
Russia's war in Ukraine has pushed an already precarious situation with respect to global food security into a full-blown crisis. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this crisis was looming due to the growing number of climate shocks affecting food production. Setbacks from the COVID-19 pandemic, including enduring supply chain disruptions and rising food and fertilizer prices. We well remember that the ripple effects of the 2007-2008 food and inflation crises, when near record prices fueled protests and riots in 48 countries, led to more protracted conflict and instability. Today, we're bracing for a similar increase in conflict and unrest that we know so often follows such destabilizing events as we're seeing in Ukraine. The bottom line is that conflict too often is a driver of food insecurity. According to the UN, conflict was the primary factor driving crisis levels of food insecurity or worse for about three quarters of the 193 million people experiencing acute food insecurity from all causes at the end of last year. These staggering numbers only continue to grow. The threat of starvation looms for hundreds of thousands of people with millions more at extreme risk. At USAID, we are evaluating, developing, and implementing responses that will protect the world's most vulnerable populations from catastrophic levels of food insecurity, exacerbated by the Russian Federation's actions, as well as severe drought in the Horn of Africa. USAID has long focused on the connection between fragility, conflict, and violence. More than 80% of the countries receiving USAID assistance are conflict-affected or insecure, and every country on the priority list for U.S. food assistance in the near future is also experiencing conflict or deep fragility. Since Russia's war in Ukraine began, the United States has provided $2.8 billion to scale up emergency food operations in countries impacted by the food security crisis including in vulnerable countries where conflict both threatens and arises from food insecurity. And just this week, President Biden announced $2.76 billion in supplemental funding, which will enable USAID to double down on efforts to address food insecurity, including by expanding Feed the Future programming to eight new countries across Africa. Through Feed the Future, USAID has leveraged investments in agricultural innovations to build resilience and mitigate the impact of higher prices for commodities such as fertilizer. In Ethiopia, for example, Feed the Future programming facilitated an 80% decrease in fertilizer wastage, while crop yields increased by up to 200% over a three-year period through the creation of a low-cost approach for rapidly developing recommendations for more effective fertilizer usage. Additionally, it's critical to understand and act on the dynamics of conflict and fragility, which we know can dramatically exacerbate food insecurity. That understanding and action must be a fundamental part of making sure our funding has the effect it's intended to have. It's the foundation of making sure we don't just give assistance, but that we deliver it effectively. Our goal is to make communities more resilient so that ultimately the need for the assistance that we provide diminishes over time. Thank you.
And thank you, Deputy Administrator Coleman, for your message this morning and for helping to provide a framework for the discussions that we are about to have with our expert panelists. Good morning, everyone. My name is Johnny Carson, and I am a senior advisor with the United States Institute of Peace. I am delighted to welcome you all to this important conversation on the food security and food insecurity and conflict and the nexus between the two issues. I'd like to use the first part of our program this morning to talk with a leading economist and food security expert about the global food crisis and the impact that it is having on countries and regions around the world. To do that, we have invited Dr. Harif Hussein to join us. Dr. Hussein is the Chief Economist and Director of the Research Assessments and Monitoring Division of the World Food Program. Before joining WFP, Dr. Hussein worked for the World Bank as an agroeconomist. Dr. Hussein, we're delighted, absolutely delighted to have you with us today. I'd like to start our conversation with a question about the state of food security around the world. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the world was heading towards a colossal food crisis. Food insecurity was reportedly on the rise in Africa, the Middle East, and scattered parts of Asia. The Horn of Africa in particular is suffering from its longest drought in nearly four, day, four decades. Dr. Hussein, can you share with us how you think the war in Ukraine has compounded the effects of climate change and rising food prices in insecure and in food insecure countries? Thank you, Ambassador. Um, hello, everybody. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, and uh, Ambassador, let me just say that I've been in this business for the last um, 20 years. Um, I've never seen anything like this before. And mind you, I was there during COVID as well. Um, why I say that? Let me just put some numbers behind what is being said. Before this crisis, food prices were at a 10-year high. Fuel prices were at a seven-year high. About 56% of low-income countries were in debt distress or at high risk of debt distress. Inflation in 45 countries, upwards of 15% year on year. In many, many countries, triple digits. Devaluation of currencies, upwards of 35 countries. Currencies decline by more than 25% just in a year. This is, this was the landscape of the world because of COVID when this unnecessary unjust war started. And uh, the first message which this war sends is that in our world today, actions and reactions are no longer in the same place. You have war in Ukraine, and people are terribly suffering in Ukraine, but millions upon millions of more people outside of Ukraine are also suffering, far, far, far away. Why? 
because this war has hit three main things. It has hit food, it has hit fuel, and it has hit fertilizer. The consequences we see right now, according to our numbers, in 2019, pre-COVID, there were about 135 million people who were in what we call hunger crises. Bad state, hunger crisis. That number today is 345 million in 82 countries. 50 million people are in what we call hunger emergencies, meaning one step away from famine. And what scares me is that this is not about one, two, or five, or 10 countries. This is in 45 countries. So yes, I don't like to use the word unprecedented because every time I've done that, we've found something bigger. But when you look back right now, this is truly unprecedented. Dr. Hussain, you sketched a very dramatic and frightening picture for us all, and you've done it on a global basis, but can you tell us more specifically about which countries and which regions are being hurt uh, the most uh, by the lack of food, fuel, and fertilizer are being hurt the most by the absence of these products or the increase in prices for them. Uh, where are the countries most impacted among the 45 that you've talked about? Vast majority of them, one, you know, Ambassador, this is another thing. The, the problem is that between COVID and this, it is no longer about just a few countries, traditional countries. It is so widespread. If I could generalize, I would say that if you were a poor country, if you were importing your food, if you were importing your fuel, if you were importing your fertilizer, if you are in debt, you're in trouble. Half of Africa is in that state several countries in Latin America, Central America in that state, many countries in Middle East in that state. So it is so widespread. And then the other thing, which is, which is, uh, which is uh, um, we only focus right now on Ukraine. It doesn't mean all other crises stopped. What we are seeing right now in, in the Horn in East Africa, it reminds me of 2011 Somalia, particularly in the Somali region of Somalia, of Ethiopia, that belt, even parts of Kenya. That reminds me what is coming out of that in terms of the severity of drought. That reminds me of 2011. And those of you who don't know, 2011 was the last big famine where 260,000 people in Somalia perished and you know what was really scary about that was half of those people who died, they died before famine was declared. 
So this is not about, oh, it will happen. These are things which are happening. I think we need to very clearly realize that fact. And Ambassador, the other thing is, like the assistant administrator was saying, 70% of what we do is in places affected by conflict. So it's not only, you know, Ukraine is the, this war has literally put a whole lot more of fuel on a, on a fire which was already hot. Dr. Hussein, you said at least half of the countries in Africa are impacted. How many of these uh, countries are you aware of that are food dependent, uh, were food dependent, and importers of grain from Ukraine and Russia uh, that has now been cut off? Well, sir, let me just say that there are about 36 countries, uh, many of them in Africa, uh, which import upwards of 50% of their wheat requirements from Russia or Ukraine. And, uh, and here, the, the, you know, the problem is, uh, and, and this is a point that we really want to make, is that right now what we are looking at is what we call an affordability issue. Meaning there is food in the world. It's just that it's not where it is needed and it is not at a price which is affordable. So let's say if you were buying from Ukraine, now if you had the resources, you can say, okay, you know what? I can go to Canada to buy my wheat, or I can go to Australia, or I can go to Argentina to buy my corn. Sure. But what are you going to do? You're going to pay more in freight, and you're going to pay more in time. And it's going to be more expensive, both in time and in money. And wh where is that expense going to go? You're going to pass it to the consumer. And if you're a person who's spending upwards of 50, 60, 70% of your income on food, how much space do you got upwards? What are you going to do? No health, no education, no schooling, no nothing. And by the way, it's not only food. It's also fuel. Everybody needs fuel. And when fuel goes up, everything else goes up. So if we are seeing pain in middle upper middle income and high income countries of this through in huge inflation why aren't we saying, well, why would it surprise anybody that you know poorer countries are suffering a whole lot more just because they don't have a space and and it doesn't end at that because you say okay so why don't the governments help well, governments are tapped out because of covid this is why ambassador it is so important that these poor countries have access to financing facilities for food, for fuel, for fertilizer. And these poor countries, that debt rescheduling continues as it was in COVID. So they have the resources to feed their own people. And I think if, if we can do some of these things, we are not going to end the pain but at least we can minimize the pain. And don't put people in a space where 
they have no choice but to get on the road, but to 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 riot. Enough is enough. This is what we saw in 2008. This is what we saw in 2011, which turned, you know, it was one person in Tunisia who put himself on fire because they couldn't afford their food. That was the start of the Arab Spring. We are right there right now. Dr. Hussain, I'd like to uh, ask uh, another question about uh, what some countries are doing with respect to grain supplies that they have. About two dozen countries have imposed uh, export restrictions on food since the Ukrainian uh, invasion. Uh, India, one of the largest uh, food producers in the world, has banned most wheat exports as a result of uh, climate change and other farming issues. How should the uh, international community react uh, to those states that are not exporting grain when there is such a demand uh, for food uh, globally? Uh, what should the United States and other countries uh, do uh, about this kind of a challenge? Sir, what we have, Ambassador, what we have seen from, from 2008 and 11 again, and that putting these, these export bans and um, giving import subsidies, they backfire. They backfire not only inside the country because suddenly you know, the prices are depressed because what was supposed to go out isn't going out. But they are also, and obviously it create a significant impact for the rest of the, the world in increased prices because now, because of that ban, you cannot buy it from that country, so you have to go elsewhere. And elsewhere, they were already supplying somebody, right? So now you are there, so that increases your price for you and for whoever went there, right? So it's, it's very easy to understand how it plays. But here's another thing. It increases the transaction cost. Meaning if you say there is an export ban, it doesn't mean that the food didn't go out. It just went out at a higher price, depending on where you are, right? So, so for me, the biggest impact of all of this is it is the copycat effect. So I do it, so you feel compelled to do it also. Why? Because you think maybe I know something that you don't. So why don't I do it as well? And I think this is the this is the risk, this is the danger. And for me, in um, in particular, I mean, uh, if you look at uh, vegetable oil, that's the, you know, uh, Export ban on vegetable oil or palm oil, that is that is significant consequences for the poorest of the poor, because that's what they, they need. You know, so it's the staple commodities and it's the oil. That's the diet. So I mean when you raise the prices of boats, what do you expect them to do? You know? And I think that is that is something where where we need to make as much noise as possible. But also we need to appreciate another thing, Ambassador, on the positive. After many, many years of hard work through WTO, to finally uh, give World Food Program a, a waiver from export prohibitions and export restrictions. That will go a long way for us in order to, 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 to provide the food to different places and at a cost which is, which is reasonable. 
you know. Uh, so so that is that is something which we I feel like you know while we're talking about export bans on one side we need to also acknowledge some good which has happened you know the world has come together and said yes okay world food program for humanitarian food commodities you have ex you have waiver from export pro prohibitions and export re restrictions Dr. Hussain, you've mentioned too in your earlier comments that approximately 60% of the world's undernourished people live in areas affected by conflict. We know that conflict often drives hunger. In today's context, what can we tell, what can you tell us about the inverse? How does hunger drive conflict? And how are we seeing this dynamic play out in different parts of the world? Sir, I think hunger Conflict has always obviously easily driven hunger. What doesn't have enough research, but which is, uh, we see it all the time, is hunger driving conflict. Uh, I would give, submit to you that if you look at 2008, it was riots about food. If you look at Syria crisis, it was a drought which started with the 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 fuel the young people behind what happened in Syria after if you look at Darfur crisis it was a nomadic sedentary people crisis again out of hunger so so there is no shortage of of, of examples it's just that it wasn't sufficiently documented but I think now we are at a state where people accept that and say, you know what, it is, it is a, it goes both ways. Conflict drives hunger, and hunger drives conflict. Look at Afghanistan. Hunger is an outcome variable. No, because of something happened, you are hungry, and when you are hungry and your children are hungry, you are forced to do whatever. And some of the things which people do are migrate, but not migrate out of, you know, like me to US, but more like migration out of destitution. I like to say that if you have the, your only two choices are starvation and migration, every single time you pick migration, don't matter who you are, you know. And this is, this is something where it is about lessons learned. Very good example for me of that is you look at the Syrian war. 2011, it started the war. People left for 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 Germany or Europe almost end of 2015. If they just wanted to migrate, why didn't they do it earlier? We studied all of this. And the bottom line of that study basically was that most people, they don't want to leave their homes, number one. But when there is no other choice, then people will take drastic measures, like putting themselves and their families on a boat, which may have a 5% chance of sinking, and put them on that, or standing on top of the Sahel, knowing that passing through Libya may mean that you're enslaved, or maybe you're raped, but you still do it. How bad things have to be 
where they are for people to make such choices. I think this is what we need to understand going back again to the point that when we don't sort out these issues, when they happen and where they happen, we end up paying a thousand times more, not only economically ambassador, but also politically. And we see that time and again. Sorry for the long answer, but I think that is, it is really important. No, I think it's an important uh, response because uh, in Africa, we have seen food uh, become uh, the driver for, for conflict, just as conflict can become a driver for food. Dr. Hussein, given the global challenges uh, and the shortages of resources to deal with them, where should the international community be focusing its efforts? Uh, where uh, should it be working the hardest and what should it be doing the most? So for me, first and foremost, it is about saving lives, first and foremost. In order to do that, we need to, it's not only saving lives of the people WFP is assisting, it is about saving lives of people who are with huge risk. In order to do that, we need to have some medium, near-term decisions which is essentially having enough resources. Um, let me just put this here. I like to say that when WFP is setting records, it's not a good thing for the world. <laughs> yes. You know? And since 2020, WFP has been setting records. In 2020, we assisted 115, 16 million people. In 21, 128 million people. Right now, we plan to assist 152 million people. The bill to assist them, 152 million people, is $22 billion. We are about half funded. When the world's prices go up, so do ours. Our prices, compared to 2019, our costs are up by 44% in numbers, in, in, that is $952 million, which is enough to feed 4 million people for a whole year, every single day. Now, why I say this is, that's what we need to do. First and foremost, that 50 million people or these 152 million people in hunger crisis, that is our moral and economic responsibility to do that if we are serious about the consequences on destabilization and, and mass migration side. That's, that's something which is important. Means we need to bring the food prices down. How can we do that in the near term? We can't just grow more, it takes time. What do we, what do we need to do? We need to make sure that somehow people see hearts melt, and people see the need to open the Black Sea at the commercial scale for essential food and fuel, food, fuel, and, and agricultural inputs. If that happens, that will have a dent on the prices. 
what we want to avoid at this stage is that this affordability crisis I talked about doesn't turn into availability crisis come next year mm. because there was not enough fertilizer in Africa or because there was not enough fertilizer in East Asia. And suddenly, come next year, we're talking about shortages of food and what that does to their prices. Short window. It's very time sensitive. It's agricultural seasons. And people need to pay attention to that right now. And then, sir, that to me are some of the things we need to, to do right away. Mm. In the medium term, we need to be talking about diversification of our export base. One of the pain points we have is that our exports of basic food commodities like wheat, like rice, like corn, like soybean are held by a handful of countries. Maybe 10 countries hold 90% of the exports. Worse yet, when you look at the stocks for these commodities, it's less than five countries holding a 90% of these stocks. So any shock to one of these countries, and we see the impact all over the world. Yeah. Ambassador, you would not have an investment portfolio which has only one stock or one class, asset class, one asset class. You would never have that. You'll fire your, your financial advisor if they were doing that. But you let it happen for global food security. And not how a new problem. Dr. Hussain, then how do we begin to diversify? How do we begin to build resilience? How do we be, begin to build capacity? How do we help uh, to move beyond the need simply to save lives uh, and to uh, bring down prices and to open ports? Uh, what do we see? Uh, as the best way to ensure that we can avoid a repetition of the kinds of crises that we're in today? And how do we uh, move beyond uh, where we are, where a shock, one shock in a particular region can have catastrophic uh, implications for millions of people around the world? Sir, one, like I said, 70% of people are impacted because of conflict. We need to start rethinking war. We need to start rethinking war and its consequences and to whom. It's no longer somebody else's problem in some part of the world which you're not worried about. Ukraine is a classic example of that. Seen it before. Mm -hmm. That's one. So second one for me is rethink our agricultural policies. Rethink our energy policies sitting in Europe. Not just from the environmental standpoint, but from economic security and national security standpoint. The problem is that what I'm seeing, I could have said that after 2008 food and fuel crisis, and it was equally valid. And after 2011, it was still valid. But the issue is that many of the things we are talking about, which need sorting out, which need solving, don't take months, they take years. Mm. And what happens is that as soon as the shock goes away, we, we forget about it. Till next time. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping that the third time is the charm and really 
all these nice, good initiatives like the farm initiative, like the G7 initiative, that we will stick with them to bring them to fruition. And if we are able to do that, then next time around, maybe we are in a better situation. I mean, maybe we cannot end the wars, but maybe we can deal better with their consequences for the people with very little hope. And, and, and the other thing, I, the last thing I wanted to say, Ambassador, it's not just about us. It is about tomorrow. Because a lot of things which happen today, a lot of kids who don't get fed, they don't reach their potential tomorrow. That is a very big problem in Africa. That is also a very big problem in many parts of Asia and Central America. I think we need to take this seriously. Dr. Hussain, thank you very much. You have been enormously generous with your time uh, this morning, and you have uh, given us uh, a lot of food uh, for thought. Uh, clearly, uh, we see that uh, conflict uh, drives uh, hunger and famine, but we've also heard from you that uh, uh, food insecurity can also drive conflict. Uh, it is absolutely uh, essential that the uh, global community uh, as a whole recognize the enormous challenge that is before us in ending uh, conflict, ending unnecessary conflict, and also uh, building up food uh, security and food resilience uh, in areas uh, where it is lacking today. Again, thank you uh, very, very much uh, for your uh, comments. Uh, and for the work that you do at uh, WFP in trying to ensure uh, that those who are in need of food uh, are able to realize it and receive it. Thank you very much uh, for your comments this morning. Thank you, Ambassador. I appreciate it. We're going to uh, now uh, move on uh, to uh, to a uh, a different uh, part of our uh, program uh, this uh, this morning. Uh, I'd like to uh, turn uh, now to introduce two very distinguished panelists who will be joining us for a closer examination of how food insecurity impacts conflict dynamics in specific parts of the world. Uh, Hanin Hassadat is the leading uh, is a lead specialist for human development and social protection uh, in the World Bank, uh, Middle East and North Africa region division. She pre previously coordinated the World Bank's response to the Syrian civil war and has written several books on the conflict. Uh, Abdi Anet is the managing director of Las Fort Consulting Group. He previously served as Minister of Planning and International Cooperation in Somalia, where he also acted as a senior advisor to the president of Somalia. He is a journalist by profession and has worked for the BBC, The Voice of America, and Al Jazeera uh, English. I want to thank both Hanin uh, and Abdi uh, for joining this discussion today. 
I would like to start our conversation by asking about the interplay of food security and conflict at the regional level. The current food crisis is hitting at a time when many of the world's most fragile countries, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, are already grappling with a daunting array of challenges undermining food security. These range, of course, from COVID-related supply chain disruptions and extreme weather and drought to soaring energy and fertilizer costs. At the same time, both regions are impacted seriously by violent conflicts in Syria, in Yemen, in Somalia, and Ethiopia, and also uh, in the Sahel region, as well uh, as specifically in places like Lebanon and Mali. I'd like to ask from a regional perspective, how might we understand the complex interplay between conflict and food uh, insecurity? Uh, and I would like to start with Hanin and ask how she sees the interplay between food insecurity and conflict playing out uh, in a part of the world that she knows best, and that is Lebanon. Thank you very much, Ambassador, and I want to send my appreciation to the USIP for convening this very important and topical meeting, and um, hopefully that we will have a, a good discussion. I very much learned from what Dr. Arif was saying, and in a way, uh, what I will be reflecting on uh, picks up very much from what he's been saying. So the Middle East, I would speak more generally about the Middle East first and I can dive in later into Lebanon. Um, I mean, what, when we talk about the relationship between conflict and food security or food insecurity, from a standard conflict theory point of view, uh, price shocks like what's happening now with the global food crisis can generate frustration and unrest. It's not clear whether these um, uh, grievances turn actually into straight out conflict. As I think uh, Dr. Arif even mentioned that we don't have enough evidence of that, but what it probably needs to become more open conflict are um, uh, uh, leaders to mobilize, uh, activists to either build on that or exploit that sentiment. Um, for it to become organized violence or conflict. Um, however, definitely uh, uh, unrest and uh, 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 can uh, brew, and, and especially in countries or in a region where already there are many other um, uh, grievances and economic, political, social issues. So this would add on top. So it is a, obviously a very volatile and uh, shaky situation. In the MENA region in particular, um, what is happening? One thing I think it's important to keep in mind is that MENA is a very heterogeneous uh, region. In fact, there are some people that even challenge the notion of calling it one region because you have uh, all the way from uh, conflict and war and very poor countries, whether it be Yemen, um, Libya, Syria, uh, extremely fragile middle-income or were middle-income countries such as Lebanon and uh, Tunisia and Jordan to some extent. And then you have a group of oil exporters uh, in the Gulf region in particular, but also uh, in Libya. And the impact of the, uh, let's say, the war of Ukraine uh, and Russia uh, 
will be heterogeneously felt by the group of countries. In fact, our recent analysis in the World Bank looking just at the economic impact, overall there's a, a, a net positive. I know that sounds weird, but that's basically because of the large uh, hydrocarbon exporters gain, gained by the countries that uh, uh, export oil and gas, uh, um, uh, i.e. The, the GCC country. But as I said, it's very heterogeneous. So you unpack that and you will find a, a set of very, very fragile group of countries which are being affected through several impacts of the conflict. One is the food price shocks already mentioned, oil and, and, and gas price surges also, which itself has a feedback effect on food and price of fertilizer and agricultural production. Um, but then you also might will have a, a phenomena of um, a flight of uh, money to more uh, or private capital to more safe havens, if you will, wherever those may be. There's an impact of remittances. This is a region where the oil importers rely very heavily on remittances from diaspora that uh, work in the Gulf countries. Now that could have a positive effect on those countries as um, uh, uh, earnings or in the Gulf country uh, increase, that might mean higher remittances or higher ability of uh, diaspora to, to uh, remit uh, funds to their to the country. And then, of course, tourism will be impacted. Uh, Egypt, for example, highly impacted uh, just generally, but also uh, had a very vibrant tourism from Russia. So there's multiple impacts that are affecting uh, the region uh, very severely, specifically on food, which is more of the topic that we have. Um, while MENA is only 6% of the world's population, it is, however, 20% of the world's acutely food insecure people. So very high, higher proportion than its population of acutely food insecure uh, people. Most of the MENA countries are net food importers, including the Gulf countries. Uh, very few actually produce their own uh, uh, grain or, or generally food products. Um, and hence, it is very vulnerable to the kind of fluctuations in food, uh, global uh, food prices. So, um, uh, and then when we kind of looked at the different countries to see who are really the most vulnerable, um, and we looked at several indicators here, one is the share of wheat imports from Ukraine and or Russia. Um, the grain reserves, how many months of stock they have, um, the domestic grain production, and then food price inflation, putting all those together in an index, Lebanon, not surprisingly, comes out to be the most vulnerable in the Middle East. First, 96% of its wheat was imported from Ukraine and Russia. So you can just imagine the kind of stop, sudden stop that took place there. It has less than one month of um, grain reserves. Uh, its uh, only or main silos were exploded in the port of Beirut explosion, um, uh, adding insult to injury. Uh, and, uh, of course, very little production and so on. So Lebanon ranks up very high, Yemen and then Syria, the very sort of red, red uh, countries. But then you also have Egypt, very vulnerable, already experiencing shocks, Tunisia as well, Morocco and Iraq, even though it is a net uh, an oil exporter. The countries which are a bit better off are Jordan, primarily because it uh, has a 15 to 18 months of grain reserve. So maybe that's one lesson for the future countries, build up your grain reserves. Uh, Djibouti uh, has about six months, Algeria about four months. So um, 
heterogeneous situation, but uh, uh, very uh, severe uh, situations existing within that. Will this lead to conflict? I mean, really, it's, it's very hard uh, to say, but as, as I mentioned, many of these countries already have are barely coming out of COVID, barely coming out of their own uh, uh, high debt and fiscal situations, a financial crises. So um, uh, it, it is, it is anything's possible. Um, it is a very, it's a high risk situation. Unlikely it will lead to an Arab Spring as such, uh, um, but this is, you know, in a nutshell, an assessment for uh, the MENA region. No, Anine, that's a, a great overview, but it sounds clearly like uh, the food insecurity uh, in the region is a significant challenge. And while it may not, uh, in fact, uh, uh, spark conflict, it is, in fact, a challenge that must be dealt with uh, in order to improve the lives of people and reduce uh, the prospects for conf conflict in the future. And can can I turn to to Abdi now and and ask uh, whether he can provide us uh, a, a bit of perspective on what is happening uh, in the Horn of Africa and particularly uh, in uh, Somalia, uh, the Horn of uh, Africa today. Uh, parts of it are suffering the worst uh, drought uh, in uh, the last four uh, decades. Uh, Somalia has also been a country in conflict for most of the last three and a half decades. What is the nexus uh, between food uh, insecurity and conflict uh, in the region? And how has the, uh, the, the situation, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine impacted uh, the Horn and particularly Somalia and its neighbors? Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, colleagues. Um, I uh, want to first appreciate uh, the USIP for organizing this timely and important discussion on the global food security um, uh, crisis, as well as the impact that is having on, on issues of conflict and security. Um, I want to echo my colleagues, uh, Dr. Arif, as well as Hanin, um, on their overall conceptualization of the, the, the challenges that were brought about uh, by the war in Ukraine, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, like many countries in this part of the world, um, uh, Somalia, specifically where I am right now, but also the broader Horn of Africa region, was importing significant uh, portions of its food uh, from Ukraine. Uh, and uh, and and currently the you know the impact that it's now having is uh, profoundly and acutely felt across the region uh, uh, but more specifically in Somalia where I have uh, been following more closely uh, the, the, the profound effect that uh, the food insecurity is having on this region cannot be um, understated and uh, it's having uh, a, I would say adverse impact on three levels uh, the first level is, you know, it, it, the food insecurity is currently um, has doubled, if not tripled in some cases, the percentage of food insecure people across this region, uh, uh, more specifically, uh, again, in Somalia, 
where I believe the latest UN numbers, WFP and other UN agencies numbers are that about half of the population of Somalia, which is about 12 to uh, about 15 million people, but half of the population is now food insecure and about a third are on the brink of famine. And this is a combination of the food insecurity as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, uh, the skyrocketing prices of fuel, uh, but also, as you had just mentioned, Ambassador Carlson, the drought. Uh, the government uh, here in Somalia just in the last few days said that this drought is the of the 40 or so droughts that had been recorded in the last uh, century here in Somalia, this one is potentially the worst. Um, and it's still unfolding um, in the country. Uh, and that means, as Dr. Arif said earlier, this could be in the same level of, uh, or it could uh, trigger the same level of famine uh, as the one in 2011 in which over a quarter of a million people um, died because of, uh, of that famine. And so the situation is, is extremely desperate. Um, and uh, the fact that food prices as they were are also have doubled and in some parts of this country have tripled uh, means that even more people are simply food insecure at this point in time. The second, uh, you know, uh, level that uh, the food security uh, is impacting is it's effectively exasperating or in some cases triggering conflicts across this region. Uh, but again, I will focus on Somalia, where I, I know more about. Um, it, it is the situation right now is that uh, uh, in many regions um, where, uh, where the communities are agro-pastoralists uh, who relied heavily on farming and on livestock, and because of the ongoing drought, which as I said, is one of the worst droughts that had been recorded in this country, uh, communities are already competing over meager resources. And this is creating um, all sorts of conflicts at the local level, at localized levels in communities across the country and in some cases across the region. The, the fact that uh, uh, the available uh, amount of food is so little and you know insufficient to um, communities it is now food is now becoming a source of conflict um, across many parts of Somalia and indeed uh, the wider one of Africa uh, at this point um, and then the third element I want to talk about is the the, the political aspect of all of this um, you know, the Horn of Africa is now going through a very interesting political time uh, uh, whereby a number of the countries are either having uh, elections in the coming weeks, like in Kenya, where presidential elections are scheduled for the 9th of August. And Somalia had just concluded a very protracted electoral process that went on for about a year and a half. Um, and so this has compounded the broader um, challenges facing communities uh, across this region. Uh, Ethiopia is going through very difficult time, uh, internal um, conflict still impacting greater parts of Ethiopia in Tigray and in, in Amhara and Oromo and other regions of Ethiopia where um, some conflicts are still active and others are emerging. Uh, and so this is uh, compounding the, the challenges that, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, political, uh, the political challenges are aggravating the humanitarian 
um, situation uh, in, in those countries. Uh, the um, and, and that is now a uh, the reality. Now, what are um, the key things that uh, can be done? Well, um, certainly, uh, Dr. Arif and, and Hanin and others have spoken about it, but certainly the conflict in you know in Europe, in in this case in Ukraine, is having a direct impact, a direct adverse impact on many parts of the world, but specifically on one of the most vulnerable regions around the world. World, which is the Horn of Africa. And, uh, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, even though this part of the world should have been food secure and should have been able to uh, rely on, you know, its uh, fertile ground and, and farming and so on, um, you know, as we know, there are a lot of developmental issues around that. But at the moment, I think it would be very critical not only to deliver um, urgent humanitarian support, but also to think about um, really how to avoid a situation like this, whereby one part of the world, a conflict in one part of the world can adversely impact in another part of the world in such a bad way that it is actually impacting right now. So um, uh, allow me to um, pause here, Ambassador, and uh, hand over back to you for uh, reflections. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, Abdi, you mentioned uh, that uh, Somalia had recently elected uh, a new president, President uh, Hassan Sheikh. Uh, how will the current uh, uh, situation of food insecurity uh, in Somalia impact his ability to carry out the economic and political reforms uh, that he has promised? Uh, what does this do to his ability to move forward? And what does uh, this do to uh, his ability to combat uh, al-Shabaab? That's a great question, Ambassador. And, uh, you know, as you know, Hassan Sheikh is not a new president, so to speak. He was a president between 12, uh, 2012 to 2017. So this is his second term, so to speak. And that gives him greater um, experience than most other people would have had. Um, I'm pleased to say that the president is putting this humanitarian crisis at the front and center of his agenda already. In uh, 10 days after he was elected, he appointed a high profile, a special envoy on humanitarian and, and drought affairs, someone who's very well known in this country, who's already been engaging the international community um, quite robustly to not only raise awareness about the issue, but mobilize resources um, to support uh, vulnerable communities. Uh, but you're absolutely right to say that the president's ambitious agenda on stabilization, um, security, uh, you know, fighting al-Shabaab is certainly going to be uh, hampered partially by the by this ongoing um, disaster and, and drought because you know uh, al-Shabaab essentially thrives on the vulnerability of communities um, across the country and they would like to always demonstrate that you know it's the failure of the government when in this case we know very well that it's a combination of a conflict in, in Ukraine and um, the failure of the rain season um, in the country so uh, it's going to be a, a, an uphill battle um, 
uh, for the president to tackle the humanitarian situation uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, confront al-Shabaab. But I'm pretty confident that he would be able to do that as he's already uh, laid out. Um, relatedly, um, the, the just the basic commodities, uh, the prices of basic commodities, including food, are skyrocketing in Somalia. The, the central bank here issued a statement uh, two days ago where they said that um, the, the, the prices of food have tripled in the last uh, few months alone since the war in Ukraine, meaning that it's out of the reach of the vast majority of the population, which is, uh, uh, you know, as I said, already food insecure and is surviving on, 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 on support from international organizations. So I think um, it's going to be a very um, uh, difficult uh, start for, for the new president, but, um, you know, he's appointed a, a new prime minister and they're forming a cabinet right now. And, uh, you know, it's expected that with the support of the international community, they're able to confront those challenges, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, hand in hand with the war against al-Shabaab. Thank you, Abdi. Can we switch back to uh, Anin in the MENA region in the Middle East and ask, how can the international community best respond uh, to the challenges of food uh, insecurity uh, in the region? And how can it apply a conflict mitigation lens to the resolution of some of the challenges there? Thank you very much. Uh, so I'd like to start addressing this question by quoting um, Security General of the Secretary General of the United Nations recently said uh, to break this dynamic, deadly dyna dynamic of conflict and hunger, we need uh, most important is we need to invest in political solutions to end conflicts, prevent new ones, and build sustainable peace. And this actually very much reminds me of the joint report of the UN and the World Bank a few years ago, Pathways to Peace. Um, so what he went on to say, most important of all, we need to end the war in Ukraine. This is kind of obvious to everyone. And it also reminds me of um, the Syrian conflict, which uh, was mentioned earlier, where once again, I mean, we, the international community have been working for years to try to address the uh, issue of the displacement and support the uh, refugees. But in the end, unless Syria becomes stable, the conflict is stopped, uh, subsides, people can go back safely and, and uh, honorably to their homes, uh, we would not really, uh, it will continue. The misery will continue and the poverty. So similarly for the situation being created now, need to silence the guns and promote peace. This is what the Secretary General said. Secondly, underscoring the importance of protecting the humanitarian access and essential goods and supplies for civilians. This is of course what also WFP has been working on, but it's more broadly and for MENA, we need to ensure that there is a supply uh, of um, uh, uh, food and and uh, uh, grains and what have you. Um, obviously, in the short run, uh, there's not going to be that easy, but we need to plant the seeds, so to speak, for uh, production and for uh, other areas, like Morocco is a country with great potential for uh, growing, uh, uh, almost becoming maybe a, a food uh, uh, hub. Um, but then we also, so this might, we have to work on the supply side as an international community, but then there's also programs that can help on the demand side. You have to work directly to support households uh, because 
with these kind of price increases, how do you, how can you bring them down? One of the ways at least is to, um, for households, especially poor and vulnerable households, you provide them with social protection, with social assistance, cash transfers. This can help at least from their uh, consumption pattern, stabilize prices. So this is also very important. And many international organizations uh, are working on uh, providing, supporting such programs. The VFP supports it, World Bank, and and so on. I'd actually like to remind, and I was looking at a, a statistic today that in the COVID, two years of COVID from January 2020 to 2022, um, the, the globally, there were $3 trillion spent on social protection program. This includes, of course, the, the developed economies as well. But, uh, and it was a huge increase globally in uh, using cash transfer. Most of those social protection programs were cash transfers to families, not all, but many, uh, the majority of it. Um, and uh, nevertheless helped a lot in terms of uh, alleviating the impact of, of COVID because people were sitting at home, no more jobs, what have you. This is other than the health response, of course. So, and we've learned from that, even just within a, sh a short two years, we've learned how to do that, how to scale up, what are the delivery mechanisms, how to do the implementation. So I think now this can be used to learn for uh, the helping countries with the uh, addressing the uh, food uh, crisis. So I think that is very important. But then you have in, in, in many countries like elsewhere, already very distorted economies. You have economies that uh, have subsidies, very large subsidies for energy, and for food. Now, this is a double-edged sword. Um, these subsidies, uh, to some extent, might have been stabilizing uh, prices or holding prices down, but it is at a huge uh, fiscal cost because it means the countries have to, um, uh, the governments, the budget is picking up the difference between the subsidized the local cost and international. And as international prices increase, then obviously this uh, uh, subsidy uh, that the governments pay uh, increases, and that is a huge uh, burden on countries which are already have um, uh, fiscal issues and debt. Um, uh, and so there are ways, these are also reforms that need to be addressed, moving to more targeted approaches. Um, and I mentioned already uh, for a medium term, supporting domestic agri-food production and where, where it may be, helping countries think about agriculture risk management and food reserve management, um, uh, how to, to, to uh, 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 to manage that. Um, and uh, I think the, uh, another area that would be helpful for many countries in the region is kind of um, um, uh, technical assistance, uh, analytics, uh, monitoring of prices. This is very important and very useful for, for uh, policy uh, making. So investing in better data and monitoring the food security situation is, is also important. So, I mean, I think to answer your question, to summarize, uh, Ambassador, uh, there's a global uh, response that needs to come together in the international community to try to find an end to this war. But then there are uh, regional as well as country level approaches that uh, need to be pursued. Thank you. Anine, thank you uh, very, very much. If I can switch back to, to uh, Abdi for uh, a moment to ask uh, uh, how he uh, sees the, uh, the, the regional response uh, to the food insecurity. 
are the sub-regional uh, organizations uh, doing their part in alerting uh, communities uh, to the threat uh, that food security imposes, and how are they responding? Yeah, thank you, Ambassador. Um, so the, the regional organization in the Horn of Africa is IGAD, as you know, uh, and they have been sounding the alarm in the, over the past few months about uh, the, uh, the threat of, uh, of drop, drought, but also food insecurity in the region. Um, you know, in terms of what they can do, um, I mean, their resources are quite limited, but I think they've been uh, very good, at least at communicating this um, with the public and trying to um, engage uh, other international organizations that are more capable in uh, helping with a response like WFP and other um, uh, organizations. Uh, the African Union on its part is uh, been, it's just a larger continent here, uh, has been trying to also um, raise the issue of food insecurity uh, across the continent. Although in political terms, as you know, um, the, the African Union has been somewhat reticent, I would say, about um, the, the war in Russia and how to, the war in Ukraine, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and how to even frame that from a purely political um, standpoint. As you know, Russia has a very strong relationship with a number of African countries. And so that has been a bit of a sensitive issue for uh, a lot of uh, African countries who are avoiding to say anything that appears uh, quite uh, negative on, on Russia. I think the important thing is what Hanin just said, which is um, how do we create sustainable um, systems to avoid a repeat of this situation? Because we're almost certain that you know something else would happen somewhere around the world. Or as we now know, the droughts are very cyclical in this part of the world. They do happen every few years. So how do we build sustainable resilient systems is the key question. And I would say both regional entities as well as governments in the Horn of Africa have not done as a good job as they as they should have been able to to try and prepare for sustainable systems that can withstand shocks like this. Uh, a lot of these countries, say Ethiopia or Kenya or even Somalia, despite the fact that Somalia was in a conflict state for now three decades, should have been um, food secured, should have been able to grow their own food. I mean, for example, in Somalia, um, you know, a, I, I don't have the exact number, but I know that the vast majority of food consumed in this country is still imported. It's much cheaper to import food than to grow it locally. Um, and that's a, a, you know, frankly, a, you know, tragic situation if you think about it. So we need to think about building those resilient systems and regional um, entities and organizations are are not entirely equipped to, uh, to, to this response. I mean, EGAT, as you know, Ambassador Carson was in fact established precisely for this reason, not for political reasons. When they were established uh, about 40 years ago, in 1986, I believe it was to respond to natural uh, calamities uh, like droughts, but also to be able to build resilient systems. And, and unfortunately, one cannot say that it has uh, achieved that objective, uh, although it's been a lot better in the last uh, few weeks. Now, another sort of big uh, element in all of this, Ambassador and, and colleagues, is the, the issue of climate change and the, and the impact that it's actually having uh, on food insecurity, on cyclical droughts, and the ability of, of states to build sustainable systems. 
you know, unfortunately, the, the whole issue of, of climate change and climate security and environmental issues is not at the top of the agenda of these governments. It's still as it should have been. IGAT and African Union and other regional organizations are trying to do their best to try to raise awareness. And just to give you an example, Somalia doesn't even have a Ministry of Environment. Um, and I think the new cabinet now, which will be formed in the coming two to three weeks, would probably have one after so many of us have been um, raising awareness about this issue. This is inseparable from the food insecurity and from droughts and, and other conflicts uh, we're having. And finally, if you allow me to make one final point here, which is to go back to the nexus between food insecurity and conflict in this part of the world, um, it is, in fact, a, a real problem. And we've recently done a study where we looked at the relationship between uh, the nexus between climate um, change, food insecurity, and conflict. And in one region of Somalia called Southwest Estate, which also tends to be the most vulnerable um, state within the Union, uh, the vast majority of localized conflicts were, in fact, driven by these three factors, um, well, mainly two factors, really, mm -hmm. climate change and um, food insecurity were driving conflicts over land and pastoral land and, and, and so on and so forth. So this is a real uh, emergency uh, and, and a real uh, policy problem for, for our government, but also for governments. You know, you, you know, if you go to Ethiopia today, a lot of conflicts between different uh, states in Ethiopia are about you know, uh, about land and, 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 and you know, uh, food and so on and so forth. Uh, back to you, Ambassador. Thank you, Abdi, for that. And you're absolutely right. EGAD was, in fact, uh, established as a drought prevention and mitigation organization originally and has now become more of a political organization. But let me turn to Hanin and ask whether the sub-regional and regional organizations uh, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa uh, are responding uh, to the food insecurity and conflict crisis. Uh, how are they responding to the nexus of climate change and food insecurity uh, and the crisis uh, that's been brought about by uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, unfortunately, I can't say they're responding very proactively. Uh, in fact, the MENA has weak regional institutions. This has been something that for decades um, been trying to uh, to to strengthen um, and uh, particularly under the Arab League. Uh, but uh, that is more of a political institution that, than an economic that. Now, of course, there are regional development banks, and they are active, of course, Islamic Development Bank, the Kuwait uh, Fund, uh, the, uh, these are the regional international organizations, but these are development funds, right? So, and then there's African Development Bank as well, which where North Africa also uh, um, uh, falls. Um, so I, I actually think there's a lot of work to go to 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 uh, be done in the MENA region in terms of regional cooperation, regional. Um, uh, uh, I don't, don't want to go as far as say regional integration because that is almost uh, an impossibility. But um, and, and it's not the first time this has been uh, uh, prioritized. However, unfortunately, there's a lot of political differences among the countries that uh, inhibit this kind of cooperation. It, maybe this will be the silver lining of this uh, uh, yet another 
crises. Um, and uh, uh, all I can say is that, yeah, this is, uh, they're weak institutions um, and it could, it, a lo long way to improve uh, in terms of, uh, now the region is not left alone, of course, as I mentioned, there's regional development banks, there's international organizations, there's the UN who are all uh, jumping in to uh, provide as much uh, support um, uh, in, this, uh, in this area. Anine, thank you very much for that response. We uh, are now moving into a transitional period where we've asked uh, our audience to raise questions. Uh, and we have, in fact, uh, gotten uh, a couple of questions from uh, the viewing audience uh, that I would like to share with you and to seek your uh, responses on. Uh, the first question that I have is, how can we fight against using hunger as a weapon? Uh, the blockade of Ukraine gets the most attention, but Yemen and Ethiopia have also been pushed into humanitarian crises by conflict-related blockades. That's from one of our listeners. Any, uh, Abdi, any comment, uh, Anin? I think we have more qualified uh, colleagues to speak to that uh, than myself. Thank you, Ambassador. <laughs> Anine, do you want to? Uh... I mean, I, I think this this is an important uh, issue that the international community needs to come around and uh, through advocacy, uh, through. Uh, um, lobbying, um, uh, ensuring that exactly what this uh, person is saying, that uh, hunger isn't used as a weapon. Um, uh, and and uh, I, I think, yes, I mean, the UN has got to, you know, play a role. Of course, other friendly countries. Um, uh, I think it's very important to in this crisis of Russia, Ukraine, which nobody sees a, an end to, uh, honestly, um, in the near term. Uh, and hence, everything we've been talking about in terms of shocks will continue for a while, that all effort are is made by the international community so that uh, vulnerable countries, Yemen, Somalia, many um, are not, uh, yeah, do not really, suffer more than they are suffering. I believe it's really a human, humanitarian, humanistic, and absolutely critical that the international community come around uh, this issue to find, in the end, a political solution has to be found for this so that the, the bleeding stops. Back to you, Ambassador. Okay. Um, I have another question. Thank you, Hanin. With a unique and specific access to vulnerable communities and conflict zones, how can the humanitarian community contribute to and develop sustainable and resilient systems? How can the uh, humanitarian community contribute to and develop sustainable and resilient systems? Maybe I can speak to this uh, ambassador because um, I was just saying something about that a bit earlier. 
uh, I think the agenda for building more sustainable systems uh, primarily falls on states. Uh, they have to lead, but uh, the humanitarian community can partner with the states on that agenda. That This is a critical agenda. In my view, this is what would in fact um, distinguish between you know us collectively failing on building sustainable systems um, to confront uh, you know uh, challenges related to climate change, food insecurity, or uh, or simply you know building the, the necessary systems. And I think the humanitarian organizations and development organizations like the World Bank and African Development Bank and others are in a unique position to support. Um, that uh, process, that uh, agenda, that states. But uh, again, I repeat that states must lead um, those by putting, uh, uh, identifying gaps, uh, but also developing policies and procedures, uh, building institutions that are aimed at tackling, um, you know, these challenges. Let's talk about. Um, Let's talk about uh, uh, climate change uh, as a main driver of, of these issues um, and put that as, a, as, a, as an agenda, you know, um, in these states, especially in, in vulnerable countries. I think it's important to highlight here that uh, uh, oftentimes there are certain allegations, you know, to uh, against the humanitarian organizations in some of our countries that they are potentially perpetuating um, these situations. Uh, for example, you will hear, you know, in Somalia and Ethiopia a lot that uh, farming communities would say that, you know, uh, humanitarian organizations are saturating the market with food and that we're unable to then sell um, our, our locally produced food. Now, I'm not in a position to say, you know, whether that's true or not, but I think there is clearly a, a you know, a, a need to uh, improve understanding between local communities and international humanitarian organizations to work together as partners in developing uh, these systems. Of course, humanitarian organizations feel the obligation to respond to crises like this when they do happen. Um, and sometimes some farming communities might misinterpret that as, as a point of saturating the market and whatnot. So uh, the partnership is necessary, but leadership still belongs to states to lead the agenda. Thanks, Abdi. Uh, Anina, I've got a question for you from a viewer, and it says, to build on your earlier comment and statement that Jordan uh, is a positive example of a country doing better or doing right, where do you see countries actually taking positive steps to improve their resilience? I guess they want to say, where are there other uh, examples mm -hmm. of countries actually taking positive steps to improve their resilience. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mentioned Jordan because they have uh, invested in uh, uh, grain silos uh, from years ago and therefore today have a good supply. Um, but that's obviously not the only way. The other uh, area where countries 
positively can uh, and have invested uh, in a way to build their resilience is where they've built adequate and adaptive social protection systems so that when crises like these come, they are ready to scale up. Uh, they have the systems, they have the databases, the registries, the payment methods. Um, uh, so, uh, and there are quite a few examples, as I mentioned, there are many countries around the world who, who in, in COVID uh, expanded their social assistance programs um, in the region Egypt has, Jordan is another example, Lebanon recently has uh, 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 done that. So this is also another, uh, obviously, uh, area that builds resilience uh, and helps households uh, be ready in a way for the next, uh, but this is not enough, of course, because you need then to help people into jobs, especially farmers. And we know that agricultural sector will be affected to the different price increases and the like. Uh, farmers are a vulnerable group and can be also, and, and will be further impoverished. Therefore, programs that um, um, can uh, uh, promote livelihood for, for farmers. And there are uh, also examples of that, but they tend to be small and, and really should be expanded. So there, there's, there are some lessons out there or good experiences that can be built on. And um, uh, I believe this is what we have to look at, where that is and, and, and scale it up and do a cross fertilization with other countries uh, and the like. Abdi, could I ask uh, whether you think there are any countries in uh, Africa or in the East Africa or Greater Horn of Africa region that are taking positive steps uh, to build resilience and to put in place measures to deal with uh, conflict and climate-induced uh, uh, food insecurity? Um, I think a, a, a good example really is uh, Kenya in the region um, in that it has uh, um, certainly slightly more advanced and more sophisticated uh, sustainable building more sustainable systems to confront, uh, confront those challenges related to food insecurity. Um, much like what Hanin just said about uh, about Jordan, there are some of these systems in place now in Kenya. Uh, I think though a key point here to be made is um, it, it is about politics as well. So getting the politics correct is essential to addressing um, uh, you know conflicts of all types, whether they are political conflicts, but also food insecurity um, triggered conflicts. Remember, food insecurity um, can exasperate existing conflicts and can also trigger conflicts. But countries that have managed their politics better are a lot, uh, uh, tend to be more sustainable, like Kenya, when we talk about this uh, region. Uh, countries that are struggling to get the politics right and have all other um, uh, types of conflicts going on, uh, like Somalia and Ethiopia, are struggling to build uh, this, the necessary sustainable system. So I think we need to focus a lot on ensuring that our politics is, is correct. I mean, I lived in Jordan for a number of years when I worked for the UN myself, and Hanin is correct. I mean, that's a country that is actually doing um, incredible uh, work, and partially because it is a fairly stable country, um, you know, in a very uh, volatile, otherwise volatile region. Um, so I think we need to focus on that. It is about making sure that we have, uh, we do not allow politics to get in the way of development, 
and ultimately uh, by humanitarian um, response. What makes humanitarian response in our region that much more difficult is that our politics um, tends to be very complex and, and volatile as well. Abdi, thank you very much. Both Abdi and Hanin, we're coming up to time, and I want to thank both of you for your outstanding contributions and insights to the discussion that we've just had. There is no doubt that there is a strong nexus uh, between uh, climate change, uh, conflict, uh, and uh, the uh, ongoing uh, issues uh, that uh, drive food insecurity. I uh, want to uh, thank you again for your uh, thoughtfulness and your time. And I would now like to turn back over uh, to the president and CEO of uh, USIP, uh, Lee's Grant. Ambassador Carson, thank you very much. Um, I would like to, just as you've done, to echo the exceptional contributions that have been made today by our panelists. I'd like to start first by expressing our gratitude to Ambassador Coleman, the Deputy Administrator for USAID for this partnership, to very particularly highlight the very interesting, quite remarkable ways that the conversation has been shaped by Dr. Hussein from the World Food Program, by Hanin, by Abdi. You know, we all know that there's a major crisis. We all know that the impact of this crisis is cataclysmic. What we've done today is to look at the factors that are driving it. And by looking at those factors to get a sense of where our collective action is needed to try and mitigate those, address them, and even better, stop them. A very particular thank you to Ambassador Carson Johnny for moderating this important conversation. And finally, if we could just take a moment to pay tribute to all of the people like Arif and Hanin and Abdi, everyone who works for USAID and for countless organizations around the world who are trying to address this crisis. Bravo to you. And we pay tribute to your efforts. Thank you all for joining us at USIP. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.